Hey, Rachel, what happened to Liang and Naga? Karma's kid siblings? They got kidnapped during the mutant massacre. By the Marauders? Or was it Friends of Humanity? What? No. Oh, was it their uncle again? Like, you know, as a way to get Karma to come back and work for him? No, no, it was Shinobi Shaw. The Black King of the Hellfire Club? No, that's Sebastian. Shinobi's his jerk kid. Oh. The one who used to run around playing murder games with the upstarts. Yeah, that's the one. Anyway, he held on to the kids for a while, then gave them to Viper and Spiral to experiment on. Oh man, those kids seriously cannot catch a break. I know, and the whole time Karma was stuck working for her super evil uncle trying to use his resources to find them. Did she? Eventually, and Beast was able to undo the damage, but Karma basically disappeared from the X-Books for a few years after that. When did she resurface? Um, X-Force ran into her at Burning Man. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 71 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Okay, so here we are, 71. Wait, that's that's like our Blackbird episode, right? Yeah, Lockheed SR-71. There we go. So just imagine this episode as a large black airplane, which sometimes manifests in the imagination of teenage girls as a giant pirate dragon. And in the manifestation of teenage robots as a small bird friend. Yes, all of these things. So... What are we talking about this time, Rachel? We are back with the New Mutants, and I think I'm actually going to say let's skip the recap this week because we're going to be covering a lot of it in the course of it. We're jumping in with New Mutants number 51. We covered the stuff leading up to that in episode 67, Shadow of the Technarch, but we'll be recapping a lot of that as we go, sort of experimenting on working that in. It's worth noting probably that we're juggling creative teams, or at least art teams, throughout these four issues that we're looking at today. We don't see the same one on any two issues. Even when it's the same penciler a couple times, Rick Leonardi, we've got different inkers on each of those. And this issue, we have Kevin Nolan on the art. And I really love Kevin Nolan's work. We haven't seen him on X stuff before, I don't believe. He's got this sort of cartoony, sketchy style, which is a whole lot of fun. I especially like the way that he draws Wolfsbane's hair when she's in human form, just like her sort of red shock of ginger poof. And I love the way he draws Hepzibah as like this sort of Jaime Hernandez kind of punk cat girl in space. Actually, I think my favorite of his characters, my two favorites are probably Cannonball and Binary. Yeah, they both look really, really rad. I mean, Binary, anytime you exaggerate anything about her visual, her look totally lends itself to that. Right. And Nolan's New Mutants look very different from any we've seen before, but they look very distinctive and immediately identifiable. And I think it works pretty well. So before we get to the New Mutants, we actually open this issue in the silent and near-empty X-Mansion, where Magneto is wandering around, brooding and feeling maudlin, as he has been wont to do lately. He's been brooding a whole lot. Not, however, brooding as much as the original headmaster of the New Mutants, who had a brood embryo inside him. So there you go. Multiple levels, yeah. Now, Magneto has a less, you know, eponymous reason for his brooding. In his case, it's because all of his students have disappeared on the tail end of the mutant massacre. They're gone, and everyone but him is convinced that they must be dead. In reality, they were sent throughout time and space, half the team to one dark future, half the team to another, and the remaining member, Ilyana Rasputin, to limbo and then space. Like, every issue of New Mutants lately has been opening with Magneto wandering sadly around the house, looking at their rooms, and I think, has he actually tidied them up between the last one and this one? They all look really neat now. You know, in the last arc, we did see him specifically tidying their rooms and cleaning out the fridge and stuff like that. So this place has got to be spotless right now. It's like the anti-bachelor pad. Oh, Magneto, he's just sad cleaning. He's just sad cleaning guy. He's clean neato. 
Now, fortunately, Magneto is in fact right in this case. The kids are not dead. They are running around in space, having gotten scattered to dark futures in a teleport mishap, because you shouldn't teleport through limbo when you're completely panicked and, you know, being attacked by marauders. I might argue that you shouldn't teleport through limbo, period. That is a really excellent point, and I think that is a point with which Liana would agree, as we will see later this issue. For now, though, the kids are in space. And they are in space with actually their former professor, Charles Xavier, who is himself running around with the Star Jammers. Should we do a brief touch on who those guys are? It's been a while since we've spent much time with them. Sure. So the main Star Jammer everyone knows is Corsair. That's Christopher Summers. And he's actually Cyclops' dad. Cyclops figured out that Corsair was his dad when he let his mustache grow too long and looked in a lake and saw his reflection. That's about the level where the continuity around Corsair sits. He is absolutely delightful. He is a rad swinging 70s space pirate with a rad swinging 70s mustache and and a super cool crew of pirate space aliens. Yeah, specifically, there's Mademoiselle Hepzibah, who's sort of a cat girl who talks all funny. There's Raza Longknife, who's like a Shi'ar cyborg dude who talks all old-timey-like and probably eats turkey legs at ye old local Ren Faire. There's Ha'od, which is way back in episode 7, we had Greg Rucka on and talked a lot about the origins of these guys, including like the histories of their names, which are kind of great. He's a big green dude who's all like polite and well-spoken. And then there's Sikorsky, who's the ship's little robot medic, and Waldo, who's the ship's computer. And they're also hanging out with Lalandra Naramani, who is the deposed empress of the Shi'ar Empire. She is the leader of a race of space bird jerks. And we also mentioned earlier binary Carol Danvers, who is traveling with them right now. If you're following current Marvel, you probably know her better as Captain Marvel. But for a while, between other identities, she was binary. She basically had the power of a star. So yeah, Xavier's been out in space because he got severely injured by a long story and had to be taken to space to heal. He sort of got stuck there because there was space rebellion going on with the aforementioned bird jerks. So right now the New Mutants are with him. They just got done defeating Warlock's dad, the techno-organic robot beard dude, Magus, and now they're figuring out what to do next. And just as we are recapping the past events of New Mutants, Professor X is getting his own recap straight out of his students' heads, finding out what's been going down on Earth while he's been away. And so he finds out that some really nasty shit has gone down. So there was the mutant massacre, of course, where like a ton of Morlocks all got killed by the Marauders. And he's kind of upset about that. But what gets me is what he's really upset about. The thing he is angriest about is X-Factor. Yeah, and that's his original five students who, as far as he can tell, as far as the new mutants know, are going around as mutant hunters doing terrible anti-mutant stuff. In reality, it's more complicated than that, but that's the only part he hears about. So first of all... I want to address the fact that he assumes that it's his original five students, because he doesn't know that Jean Grey is back from the dead. No one knows. I mean, I'm assuming he thinks that the redhead who's a member of the team and all of like the media shots is Madeline Pryor, Cyclops's wife. The other thing is that this is a dude whose first response to any threat is to fake his own death. And it does not occur to him that maybe this X-Factor thing might have a little more to it than he's seeing on the surface. He has a douchebag double standard. He has a number of douchebag double standards, and this issue is all about that. So he decides, like the paternalistic asshole that he is, and it's weird because he was kind of great in 50, but he's so awful in 51. And that actually kind of bothers me, because if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that overall, I am a Charles Xavier apologist. I agree that some storylines have him doing some terrible things, especially ones not written by Chris Claremont. But, you know, overall, I think he's a really good guy. He's really admirable. I wish he was my bald telepath dad sometimes. You really don't. Well, you know, but the point is, it's so strange seeing him in New Mutants number 50 go from, by and large, a really good admirable dude to in 51, him pulling some of the crap that he's pulling. See, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute, or maybe the reverse. I think that part of why we judge Charles Xavier so differently, because I mean, I am with Kitty Pride on the Charles Xavier as a jerk front. 
is that you give him a lot of credit for intentions. And I see him as a very, very well-meaning person whose good intentions are perpetually derailed by his tendency to paternalism and his general lack of trust in other people. And also just the fact that he has a kind of slippery conscience and a tendency to rationalization when it comes to using his powers, which involve, you know, manipulating and rewriting people's memories, controlling them. Like the potential for abuse for a telepath casually using their powers is so much greater than for really pretty much any other power set. I mean, are we talking like a Rudyard Kipling, the bald man's burden sort of thing? We are not, because that would be giving him the responsibility to use his powers gratuitously and extensively to enforce his own dubious moral system on other people, invade their homelands and generally be Victorian and post-Victorian Britain, which no one should ever do because it's a douche move. I just wanted to say the bald man's burden. Okay. What I'm saying is that he's in a singularly slippery position when it comes to how little intentions count. And I think that this issue is a really perfect example of it. I mean, his first response to crises, for the most part, that's something that we've seen since the Silver Age consistently and that we'll continue to consistently see is to lock down and take control, to basically be like, nope, obviously you're all incompetent. I should never have given you command. I should never have given you any autonomy. I should just come in and fix everything. And what that really reminds me of is way back in the early Chris Claremont run of X-Men, after the X-Men are separated after fighting Magneto and sort of go around the world for, I think, 10 or so issues, they finally come back to Xavier. And at this point, they've really matured into a very functional team. Cyclops is a good leader. They're all working together well. And Xavier just tries to take over and it just doesn't work. Yeah, he's like giving Wolverine fucking demerits. That's really a bad plan, Chuck. It's a really bad plan. You know, this is that Charles Xavier. It's him saying someone has done something that superficially I don't understand or like. And so I'm just going to come in and barge in and fix it because obviously no one will ever be as qualified as me. Xavier's flaw and his fatal flaw and the one that undercuts his generally heartfelt attempts to do things right and be a good person is just overwhelming hubris. Yeah. Now, to go in an entirely different direction, we have other Shakespearean traits going on back on Earth, specifically Storm, like, challenging the very heavens themselves in the middle of this huge flood and, like, hurricane as Magneto is carrying her around on a big piece of metal. Yeah, Storm and Magneto are salvaging a wrecked ship and using it to build a breakwater to stop this flood. And I mean, actually, as Miles said, it's just Magneto who's doing this. Storm is just sort of riding around soliloquizing. And what I've come up with just in terms of what must be going on is that Magneto believes strongly that there is a correct way to do great works and that that correct way involves dramatic soliloquy. And if he is too busy doing all of the magnet stuff, then he will delegate. I really like this plan. It's like having a squire and just telling the squire, all right, you need to like strike fear into the hearts of all of humanity. Go. I'm going to go ahead and carry this metal around. No, no, no. I think it's more of a collaboration thing. I mean, I think he clearly recognizes Storm as a kindred spirit, you know, with the prematurely white hair, the flair for the dramatic, etc. Okay, I'll totally buy that. But um, yeah, they're working together to essentially save this city from a flood. And I really love the devil make hair attitude Storm has in this. Like, she is very much King Lear in this scene. Like, screw you, skies. Screw you, weather. I might not be able to control control you, but you will not take me down. There's something else going on here, too, and they're having a conversation about, and that is that Magneto has a really big decision on his plate. He has been invited not only to join the Hellfire Club, but to join the Lord's Cardinal of the Hellfire Club as its White King. Now, the Hellfire Club are a group of the wealthy and powerful who like dressing up as Victorian gentlemen and or strippers, and basically are attempting to rule society from the shadows. 
The Lord's Cardinal, on the other hand, they rule from the shadows of the shadows. They're a group of mutants that are basically in charge that nobody realizes are mutants or, for that matter, often even exist. I would like to briefly take issue with that and point out that the men's costumes in the Hellfire Club are not Victorian. Okay, well, you know, archaic anyway. They're roughly enlightenment to what extent they're attached to any time period, but they're wildly slapdash anachronistic. How about we just say old and fancy? Well, and they're also based on, I think, a plot line from the old Avengers TV show, not the Captain America Avengers, but the Stephen Peel ones. Right, exactly. So, yeah, Magneto's like, well, what do I do? Because the Hellfire Club is not wrong that if we teamed up, we would be a lot harder to murder the way everyone just got murdered in the Mutant Massacre. You know, on the other hand, they're super evil, and Storm is like, fuck no, go for it, man! What? king the hell out of that club. And what I really like here is as he's soliloquizing, again with a soliloquy, he takes this sort of chunk of metal and turns it into the trident, the symbol of the Hellfire Club. And when he's talking about how he's worried that it's going to corrupt him, he then turns it into his old Magneto supervillain helmet. And I feel like this guy is a walking metallic PowerPoint presentation. I mean, he must be amazing at charades. Wait, wait, wait. Oh my god, I've just realized something. Yeah? So... He's the awkward, you know, gentleman in charge under highly adverse and difficult circumstances and very much out of his depth of an educational institution with a flair for the dramatic, with strong tendencies towards dressing up in serious costumes, declamatorily bursting in on groups. Obviously, he's learned PowerPoint. Clearly, Magneto is the Craig Pelton of X-Men. And now I'm just imagining Jim Rash playing Magneto, and it's super weird, dude. Super weird. But kind of awesome, right? I mean, I would watch that and or read that, whichever it would be. It's really completely easy to imagine him, you know, in his office, just breaking down. Oh, geez. You know, and just being like, I've been trying so hard, but my my new VR gear won't work. And I I was going to join the Hellfire Club. And I really thought that they'd save Xavier Dale and... (laughs) (laughs) oh man well uh very strange crossovers aside so yeah like you were saying storm is in favor of magneto joining the hellfire club and she refers to something that we have not heard of before or rather we sort of have she says that'll be useful when the x-men execute plan omega whoa 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 okay so the last time i remember reading the name plan omega in an x-men comic was during the dark phoenix saga And at that point, it was specifically Lalandra's plan to blow up the entire solar system. Right. So apparently Storm is so worried about the current state of mutant human relations, she wants to blow up the solar system? No, this is actually a different Plan Omega, and this basically is the X-Men faking their death. And I don't know why she named it Plan Omega, considering that there already was one and that was its connotation. Maybe she, like, ran out of letters. I don't know. I mean, that's the last Greek letter, right? So this must be her her final plan. It is. And this is why Cyclops is the best leader of the X-Men, because he understands that when you use numbers for your plans instead of letters, you don't limit yourself to just 26, or I guess in the case of the Greek alphabet, you know, 24. Right. So Magneto's pondering what to do, and this is going to be a big deal. This event right here, this decision, I mean, we saw in the last arc of New Mutants that many of these dark futures come from Magneto deciding to join the Hellfire Club. We'll see in the future that that's one of the biggest things that sets him on the path he will eventually go on away from Xavier's school and back to being a supervillain. Make good choices, Magneto. Well, he won't, but at the same time, I really can't blame him. Given the shit he's been through, I mean, honestly, I would probably do the same thing. You know, we've seen him do this before when he sent the kids to the Massachusetts Academy to Emma Frost. He is doing what he feels he needs to do to protect the people he's sworn to protect. And to what extent Magneto has a defining mission, really, even when he's a supervillain, it tends to be that. Absolutely. Now, speaking of people who are not so good at that, Let's go back to the Starjammer and check in with Charles' abuse of power, Xavier. Yeah, I mean, I normally defend the guy, but you're not wrong here, Rachel. Oh, He's man, pretty terrible. This is such a line for me. So, Ileana is having a lot of trouble with Limbo. 
It's recently become infected with a techno-organic virus. This is something that comes from Warlock from the Technarchy, specifically through his father, Magus, who they took down in New Mutants 50. And at the same time, her former right-hand demon, Sim, is rebelling against her. She doesn't want to go back there. It's horrible. She doesn't want to teleport back. But at the same time, she's the only chance the kids have to come back. And now, as a reminder, Ilyana, while she is a teleporter, she always has to teleport first through the demon realm of Limbo and then to her eventual destination. She can't just go straight to the destination. It's like the worst toll booth ever. It really is, yeah. Her customs point. When she realizes she's going to have to, she runs off and locks herself in her room on the Starjammer. And instead of saying, you know, maybe I should talk to her because I found out last issue about all of this terrible stuff she's been through and how utterly conflicted she is about Limbo. This would be the same thing to do, right? Like, this would be the rational teacher thing to do. Yeah. You know what Professor Xavier does? He goes, hey, Karma, possess her. Yeah, and so he has Karma possess magic and force her to come out of the room and also to basically say what she's thinking of and say what she's afraid of, which, I mean, that's such a breach of privacy. I mean, that's like bringing somebody in front of their second grade class and saying, hey, this kid's a bedwetter. Everyone look at the bedwetter. Yeah, he does this in front of the rest of the new mutants who, in their defense, are absolutely horrified. Especially especially, Mirage. Yeah, especially Mirage, whose head is generally on straight. And why the fuck would you do that? This is Xavier and his paternalism and his idea that his priorities are the right priorities and other people need to follow them, even if it means bending them to that. I mean, this is the Charles Xavier who wiped the Vanisher's brain because it was more convenient than rehabilitating him. Yeah. And so they're pondering what to do. And it's at this point that basically Shi'ar ships who are under the command of Lalandra's evil sister, who is currently ruling the Shi'ar Empire. Again, long story. Not really actually that plot relevant, but, you know, Shi'ar stuff. But they show up and they start to attack the Starjammer. And Xavier's like, oh, crap. Well, now we do need to figure out what to do because this ship may be destroyed very soon. And what he ultimately decides is that, well, no, he is going to stay with the Starjammers and with Lalandra because his potential to be paternalistic and ruin lives is really much greater if he's got a whole empire. Well, specifically because if they don't stop the evil parts of the Shi'ar Empire, they could wipe out the whole universe. Well, I guess there's that too. And so at this point, he really does have to make a fast decision, and he does the exact same thing. He has Karma possess Ilyana and force her to teleport the New Mutants to Limbo and then back to Earth so that they're safe. Professor Xavier? is a douchebag. This is some bad, bad Xavier stuff going on right here, yeah. I mean, I can understand, you know, you have to make a decision quickly because maybe your ship's going to be destroyed and then maybe everyone would die. Spoiler, it's not destroyed. They're okay. But even so, like, dude, that's just insult to injury. Now, back on Earth, Ilyana is justifiably furious. Lousy, rotten, stinking sleazebags, my friends. Ha! My pet demon Sim is more honest than you. A lot more decent, and he's out to kill me. Don't push me, any of you, or I may sheath my magic blade in your hearts. You made me little better than a puppet. I'll never forgive you for that, and when I get back from Limbo, I'm going to make you pay. And that's a hell of a change from her just opening up to Xavier and just hugging him and finally feeling safe around him just last issue. Yeah, that kind of change would be what happens when you trust someone and then they massively abuse that trust. Totally. You know, you fall farther when you start out at a height, and I think that's exactly what happened here. So speaking of people who aren't Xavier, and speaking of falling from heights and metaphorical descents, Storm and Magneto are headed to the Hellfire Club, and Storm is in her punk gear, but Magneto has donned the traditional attire of the White King, and he is not super happy about it. He and Storm are talking, and Magneto decides, nope, if he's going to go into the Hellfire Club, he's going to do it on his own terms, and so he just rips his fucking shirt open like it's a wrestling promo, and it is awesome. To quote, 
They can accept us as ourselves and not their own painted poppin'jays. Which is extra hilarious because he's literally changing from an all-white outfit into, like, magenta and lavender and, like, a huge cape. I mean, I don't know what a poppin'jay is. I'm showing my poppin'jay ignorance here. But if anything is painted as compared to his white suit, it's his glorious magenta fuchsia. I really love Magneto's commitment to his color scheme during this era, because, like, even when he's wearing a three-piece suit, it's in those colors. He knows it looks good with his white hair. It really suits his complexion. Like, he knows what works. He is owning it. And so he goes in and he's like, yeah, take me on my terms or not at all. Me and Storm, we're going to be co-white king of the Hellfire Club. You like that? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. I think everyone always forgets this part. Not only is Magneto the White King, but Storm is the other half of that role. Everyone always forgets that she was a leader of the Hellfire Club as well for a time. I'd really rather think of them as the co-fuchsia king of the Hellfire Club. That doesn't really have quite the ring to it, though, does it? Well, but you can make days of fuchsia past jokes. Uh, That's true. That's true. So the next thing we see in the next issue is the New Mutants fighting for their lives against the Marauders. You know, it's interesting to me, and actually I think it's really effective how much the Marauders keep coming back, and that fear of the Marauders just permeates every X-book after the Mutant Massacre. Oh yeah, I mean, we see all of these Morlocks still recovering, we see this whole Plan Omega thing that Storm was talking about be basically so the X-Men can go underground so their loved ones are safe. We see an X-Factor, the characters worrying that their disappeared friends and allies had been removed by the Marauders. Spoiler, it's totally the right. Uh, Yes, it is, in fact, an organization called The Right. And we see the New Mutants still traumatized after what they saw in the tunnels. And I mean, I cannot blame them. Initially, when I started reading this issue, I assumed this was a nightmare sequence. It's the New Mutants fighting against the Marauders and gradually getting slaughtered, punctuated, I will admit, by some absolutely metal dialogue from Magma. Okay, so we talked in our last New Mutants episode about how it seems like Claremont has finally discovered what to do with Magma, who for a long time was the most boring New Mutant, and that's to have her make really epic, defiant speeches when she's about to die. If it is Amara Aquila's fate to descend to the pits of Tartarus, I will at least have your shade, murderer, to lead my way! As she's, you know, like, blowing up Scalp Hunter. And I mean, I kind of feel like Magma should just spend her days and nights in utter peril about to make the ultimate sacrifice just so she can sound epic as hell all the time. You know, your Magma voice is basically animated Storm. I kind of feel okay about that. Although now I wish we had Mikey Nielsen from the Giant Size role-playing episode to voice Magma. Right, always. So this is not a dream sequence, as it turns out. This is a danger room sequence. And specifically, it's a top-level X-Men danger room exercise. It's a level that's supposed to be not accessible to new mutants, but Magneto is running them through this basically as an object lesson. Yeah, and I mean, when you first look at it, especially if you look at it from the new mutant's own perspective, it seems very cruel. But you know, dude's not wrong. And I actually like the way he sums it up when Sunspot protests that this is too hard of an exercise. Are not you, Sunspot, the one who constantly maintains that you novices are the equal of the school's senior team? When the Marauders first attacked, you were told to remain on school grounds for your own safety. You chose to defy that command, and thereby placed your lives and possibly the X-Men's in jeopardy. And again, this is a super good object lesson. This is not just Magneto saying, you can't do this, you're not grown up enough yet. It's him saying, this is what would be happening. This is the closest I can come to demonstrating this in action, really actually making them experience it and not just telling them you can't do it, because no teenager's going to believe that. They're fucking invincible. I expected better of you all. I thought I could trust you, count on you, as you, I hoped, would me. It appears I was mistaken. Consequently, you are all restricted to the school grounds until such time as you prove yourselves able to act with the appropriate maturity and responsibility. 
Now, there's one new mutant who's not around for this, and that is, by coincidence, the one new mutant it's pretty much impossible to restrict to school grounds because her power is teleportation, and that is Ilyana. Ilyana is currently fighting her way through Limbo, which is overrun with a techno-organic virus. As she does, she's turning more and more into the Dark Child persona. The Dark Child persona is something we first saw in the Magic miniseries when she grew up in Limbo and when she was trained by the demon sorcerer Belasco. And this is basically Ilyana's dark side. It's the part of her that's connected to Limbo and it's the part of her that's connected most directly to her magic. Right. And so the more sorcery she uses, the more Limbo magic she uses to fight Sim and the techno-organic demons that are taking over this realm the more she becomes this part of herself that she hates, that she's scared of. You know, I don't think it's just that. Because if you look at what she's doing, I mean, we've talked about this before when we've talked about basically the metaphysics of Limbo and how it works relative to its ruler. What she's doing, lashing out at Limbo like this, first of all, it's very clearly the only place where she really feels like it's okay for her to really let go and just rage. But second, in lashing out at and destroying Limbo, she's fairly literally doing those things to herself. She functionally is Limbo in a lot of ways. That's true. I mean, it's this sort of self-destruction slash outward aggression all mixed into one. It's her basically just screaming at the world in a way she knows won't hurt any of her friends. Right. And something she talked about, you know, with Xavier in their actual moment of connection a few issues before is that the Dark Child isn't necessarily her evil self. It's a part of her. And it's, again, specifically the part of her that's connected to Limbo. And so it coming out and taking over her more I don't think it's so much about becoming this thing that she's tried to suppress and that she hates so much as it is about, you know, just losing control, about tearing down the parts of herself that she's actively tried to build, which is everything else, because the Dark Child is what comes naturally to her. That's who she is as a default without the veneer of civilization that she's tried to readopt since coming back to Earth and worked painstakingly to learn and regain. The Dark Child is sort of her base form. I think you're right, yeah. But she eventually, as she's just raging and raging, does seem to kill Sim. She runs him through with her soul sword, and she thinks she's victorious. She, she plants the sword into the ground in limbo to keep the techno-organic demons at bay and heads back to Earth. And as she does, we see Sim's face come out of the flower to say, Nice try, Babeling, but no cigar. Now, back in Westchester, the rest of the New Mutants are kind of trying to reestablish some kind of normal. They've just been through the Mutant Massacre, they've just come back from space. Things have been weird. Their routine is a bit thrown off. You know, the New Mutants are all just hanging out, basically being kids, except for one of them, that being Karma. She comes in to bring some paperwork to Magneto, you know, headmaster-style paperwork, presumably. And she's like, yeah, so about my siblings, I really need to go look for them. I'm terrified that they're not okay, that they might need to be rescued. And Magneto says, no, we're on it. We're looking for them. It's going to be okay. I don't want you to get killed. The Marauders are still out there. She responds, basically, I understand, but I'm not going to accept that. Now, meanwhile, Ilyana is still having a pretty rough time. She is in her room, and she is really desperately missing Kitty Pride, who's her best friend, who's the only person she really talked to about this stuff at home. She's been very careful to keep the limbo business basically as separate from the New Mutants as possible. And, you know, this is this tangential, but I really love that in the photo that she has of the two of them, Kitty is just like 100% Ellen Ripley. Yeah, specifically from the first Alien. I think you're totally right. Yes, I'm so into this, and I'm so specifically into the idea of Sigourney Weaver as like the older Days of Future Past Kate Pride. That would be amazing casting. I right? fully approve. So good. So she's feeling really down and Magneto knocks on the door. You want to you just read through this? I really like this part. Yeah. Hello, Ilyana. I have a problem. And I was wondering, hoping actually, you might help me resolve it. I am headmaster. That means I'm responsible for you all to teach you to look after you. But what am I to do? How am I to deal with a student who deliberately flouts my authority? If I tolerate such behavior, I lose all respect. If I respond the wrong way, I might well drive that student away. You've got the power. You could force obedience. 
Does being the strongest automatically give one right to force obedience? Without power, you're always a victim. Is that what you wish to be? You think you can beat me? That isn't why I'm here. Why don't you just leave me alone? You can't help. I have to try. Then maybe you'd better see what you're up against. And I love the body language on this page. I love the way they're drawn. Actually, I'm going to throw this whole page up in the as mentioned. I don't usually do that with ones we quote, but this is so, so effectively done. And she reveals her room, which she's basically making look a lot more demonic and evil, making all of her stuffed animals look demonic and stuff, and then teleports him to Limbo, where Sim attacks them immediately. And Magneto basically says, okay, well, techno-organic virus, freezes him in place and says, do you want me to kill him? I can fix this for you. Do you want me to do that? And Ilyana says, no, this is my responsibility. I need to take care of this. And that's admirable, and I respect that, but given the stuff that's going to happen in Inferno, I really wish Magneto had just killed Sim right there. So many lives would have been saved. You know, first of all, hindsight, but at the same time, though, Magneto in this issue, I feel like, is the absolute anti-Xavier last issue. He is all about treating the students to a fair extent like adults, not just saying, you can't do this because I say so, but saying, this is why I'm going to not only explain this to you, I'm going to let you experience it. And in this case, doing something that is not coming in and fixing Ileana's problems for her, he's giving her a choice that wasn't otherwise accessible to her. He is explicitly offering her agency and treating her as a peer. And that's going to continue throughout the scene. And God, he's such a good person. Like his perpetual self-doubt in this era is so frustrating and so ironic. And the extent to which his students just idolize Charles Xavier, who is such an utter asshole, makes me so mad because he's so good and he never, ever gets the confidence to let that run. He's eventually going to leave the school because of it. And listen to this right here. We both have demons in our souls, Ilyana. Yours have a physical being as well and can be confronted directly, but mine are no less fearsome. We've both done things that will mark us for life, that cannot be undone or forgotten and may never be atoned for. Our choice is to be overwhelmed by them, to yield to despair, and let our past dictate our present and future, you to be the demon sorceress and I the evil mutant. Or we can accept what we were and are and go on regardless, learning and growing as we do. We could lose. Does that mean we should not try? Friends can aid us, but in the end, we must stand alone. I love their friendship so much and these two as peers. This is something that we've seen small glimpses of since, but never to this extent, and it's a shame. I really do wish that Brian Bendis had run with that dynamic a little bit more in his recent Uncanny run where they were both main characters. I understand it's been a long time and Ilyana's not technically exactly the same Ilyana, but even so... We saw that dynamic a little bit between Ilyana and Cyclops, actually, in that run. And I think not giving Magneto that with either of them is a mistake because those are, at that point, really three-way points of overlap. Well, and I think a lot of people just forget this Magneto era in general. Him as Headmaster of the New Mutants, and it's my favorite Magneto, like, ever. He also has the absolute best eyebrows during this era. He does. Eyebrows are an important part of any X-Men comic, and Magneto's got some great ones. Indeed. The eyebrows of authority. So there's this wonderful little happy ending here, this sort of glimmer of hope. Of course, it will be crushed and taken away because this is X-Men and that's what happens. But, you know, that's what we as X-Fans live for. We know that the things... crushing and taking away of hope. No, no. The brief glimmers of hope before they're crushed and taken away. Ah. I mean, the darkness makes the light that much brighter. I know that's a total cliche to say, but I think with X-Men, it absolutely applies. Aww. Yeah. Now from here, we go into nightmare mode. Issues 53 and 54 are basically one contiguous story, one arc, so we're going to be looking at those pretty much as the same thing. And we start out just looking at this weird circuitry. It sounds like these computer routines running and kind of identifying themselves as they do, you know, going into verbose mode, basically. 
And it zooms out, and we see that that machinery is a little bit of circuitry lodged into a tiny bit of the eye of Doug Ramsey, Cypher. Now, as you may recall, Doug has been basically merging physically and personality-wise with Warlock, who's a techno-organic entity, in previous issues. And both of them are concerned in the process of this that Doug will become infected with Warlock's techno-organic virus. It's what basically lets him take over and consume organic matter. That hasn't happened so far, but apparently it is now. And so Doug starts freaking out, and his teammates, the rest of the New Mutants, hear this, and they all run up to see what's the matter, and he reaches out to touch Cannonball to, you know, gain some kind of comfort or seek aid, and Cannonball gets transmuted into circuitry by the transmode virus. And this happens one by one with the rest of the New Mutants who eventually start to fight back, but to no avail. And over the process of it, Doug's face and also his speech patterns become more and more and more like Warlock. He's becoming not only techno-organic the way he and Warlock look when they're merged, but he's getting a lot more of that cartooniness, that arbitrary representation, he's starting to refer to himself as self and use sort of Warlock's broken syntax. Yeah, and eventually all of the new mutants are dead. They're infected, they're turned into circuitry. And one of the little touches I really like is that they're all different colored circuitry. They're not just like the same undifferentiated mass. So you really keep that individuality in these people that Doug has killed, his friends, which just really adds to the horror, to the gravity of what he's done. The only one of the new mutants we haven't seen through this, the only one who would presumably be unaffected is Warlock, and Doug flies out to try to find him, only to discover that Warlock has changed as well. Warlock's species, the Technarchs, come in pairs. There's the Magus and the Warlock. Warlock's name is also his status as sort of the youngster. And the nature of their society, of their species, is such that those two are immediately and eternally locked in a death struggle. And now that Doug has become what he has... Warlock has ascended to the Magus. He's speaking smoothly. He's referring to himself as I, and he's bent on killing Doug. And it's this terrible, terrible nightmare, because not only are Doug's friends all gone, but his very best friend, Warlock, has now become everything he never wanted to be. Just everything has either been destroyed or inverted, and life is terrible. But, you know, thankfully, as is so often the case with horrible openings of X-Men comics, this is just a dream. So Doug wakes up, and he immediately runs in a panic to the mirror and, and looks, and he's normal. You there, boy, what day is it? No. Oh, we're not doing Christmas Carol? We're so not doing Christmas Carol. Well, okay. But yeah, he's really pleased to be normal. And then the camera, as it were, of the issue zooms in more and more on his eye, and there's that little bit of circuitry. So two things. First of all, this issue opening is one of the ones that I remember most clearly from my first read-through of the series. You know, me too, actually. And second, I didn't get to mention it before we started talking about the dream sequence, but the title of the story and the title that is written in cursive across the first page of this dream sequence is Seduced and Abandoned, which comes awfully close to being textual confirmation that Doug and Warlock are a thing. You know, when they merge, it's very, very much reads as really romantic or sexual. It's very much there in the dialogue. We talked about it when we talked about the New Mutants and X-Men annuals where they go to the Mojoverse. And again, this is one of those flies under the radar thing. And I think at that point I made the joke that, you know, queer subtext isn't just for the ladies anymore. <laughs> right. But this is really, really close to saying it overtly because it's not the kind of joke that tends to get thrown in as an issue title. No, I mean, I think you may be onto something there. Although Warlock actually is not in these next couple of issues. You're right, and neither is Sunspot, and that is because they are off-co-starring in the eight-issue miniseries Fallen Angels. And we'll be getting to that miniseries very shortly. It's one of both of our favorites. I'm really excited about that. Devil Dinosaur is definitely in it. And some lobsters and Boom Boom. It's great. Yeah, it's a phenomenal series. I'm really, really looking forward to getting to the point of covering that. I feel like that's got enough of a critical mass of that stuff that we can justify it. Also, you know what? It's our podcast. We can totally just do it if we feel like it, right? We have absolute power. My God. 
and we're going to use it to explain the continuity of the eight issue miniseries Fallen Angels someday. But today is not that day. Today we are still talking about the New Mutants. Right. So, you know, Doug's fine for now. But what is going on is that some random impressively eyebrow dude is buying a statue of Celine. You know, the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, the evil lady from Nova Roma, the villain that we just aren't really interested in, from some shady folks in a taxi. Who are very clearly Viper and Silver Samurai. Like, how many ladies in the Marvel Universe have green hair and lipstick? Well, there's also Abigail Brand. There is. So, you know, two. There's Madam Hydra. Is she the same as Viper? Sometimes. Long story. Right. I think we actually might have done a cold open about that. Yes. And also near the Hellfire Club, we see Magneto and the New Mutants teleport in via magic stepping discs. What? So it's implied that a lot of time has passed since they were, in the words of the title of the previous issue, grounded for life. I actually, can we talk about that and what that would mean for the New Mutants? Because how many of them have died and come back? Are they still grounded? Yeah, I don't know. Does the statute of limitations run out when you die? I would assume so. What's happening is that Magneto basically says, hey, you guys have been grounded for a while. There's this big gala at the Hellfire Club where I'm the White King. I'm going to bring you as my guests and you can enjoy this fancy party. Why would he ever choose to do that? First of all, these are the new mutants who have proven themselves over and over to be constitutionally incapable of behaving themselves in public. Second, this is the Hellfire Club, with which the new mutants all have horrible history, either with the White Queen, with Selene, or both, and several of them have independently tried to murder members of its leadership. Perhaps this is not Magneto's greatest plan as a headmaster, it's true. Right? Like, what the hell is he thinking? Well, regardless, the New Mutants are mostly doing okay to begin with. Yeah, they're doing okay. Ilyana is pretty entertained by this pretense to evil because obviously, you know, she knows from evil and the other New Mutants are sort of running around. I love Ilyana here for actually, this happens a little bit later, but um, first there's some drama. The tension is rising. Yeah, because Taro, who's one of the more innocent members of the Hellions from what we've seen. She's one uh, of the less overtly evil ones, uh, certainly. Asks Cypher to dance and he basically... I feel like he's the kid that got picked on and pretty girls would pretend to like him only to laugh at him. And so he's like, no, I'm not falling for it. You're just trying to manipulate me. And she runs away in tears. No, he's the kid who's basically having a breakdown right now because the two other teammates by whom he kind of defined himself have disappeared and he feels useless and pointless. You know, we've talked about Cypher as kind of the moral compass of the team. And a lot of that is in pushing back against Sunspot, who is brash and hot-headed and basically wants to punch and or Magnum P.I. everything. I don't know what Magnum P.I. means as a verb, but I assume that he wants to do it. Sounds kind of sexual. Doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, on the other hand, there's Warlock and Doug is his best friend. He's his main conduit to humanity. And when we've seen them in social gatherings, a lot of what Doug has been doing is kind of coaching Warlock and running interference for him. And so now he's just kind of on his own and he's already been questioning his place on the team. And not only is he questioning his purpose in superhero contexts, but now he's kind of lost a lot of his social direction with those two. Right. And so Magic sees all this going on and immediately hones in on Empath, who is easily the worst of the Hellions, who can manipulate people emotionally. And does frequently, but also who is terrified of Ilyana because A, his powers don't work on her, and B, the last time he used them to mess with someone on a large scale, the new mutants basically dragged him into limbo. And she is the person he cannot mess with. And she basically just sidles up to him and you know, slinks up and drags him into a dance and is like, yeah, don't even go there, buddy. Yeah, there's this great panel of her with her head just resting on his chest, smiling beatifically and threatening horrible doom upon him in a way only he can hear. Good. Yes, correct. This is the appropriate response to Empath. And so the other new mutants are all, you know, pairing up with their various rivals and or friends and hanging out. 
And that's when a big fancy Hellfire event occurs, which is that eyebrow dude we saw before, Van Ostemgen. He presents the statue of Selene to Selene herself, saying, hey, I offer you this gift, and he's clearly hoping to, you know, curry the favor of the Hellfire Club and the Lord's Cardinal. Oh, he's a sucker, though, because as it turns out, there is someone here who is in a position to be like, fuck no, that statue's a fake. First of all, it's not Selene, it's my several greats grandmother. Second of all, the real one is on my mantelpiece at home in Novaroma. Amara Aquila out, bitches. Right. So Magma's seen the statue, and Celine just sort of smiles and says, well, yes, that is a statue of your ancestor. And it's a statue of me. Implication, implication. And this sounds super portentous. It sounds like it's about to be a major plot point, but no, it's just a total red herring. I don't think it ever even comes up again. Well, I mean, it certainly does come up in the continued hatred of Magma for Celine, this woman who, you know, ruled her civilization doing terrible things from the shadows and who killed her mother. Okay, obviously it's going to come back later. It's going to be a major plot point like in the late 90s. But right now it's this bomb drop and then the story just sort of veers left. Right. But regardless, what we have now is, you know, intrigue, like mystery. Oh, yeah, geez. As, you know, this dude is completely humiliated in front of the Hellfire Club, and these tensions are just continuing to rise, continuing to rise between the New Mutants and the Hellions, and this is when Roulette, one of the worst Hellions, decides to flirt with Doug. Yeah, we should point out that the Hellions are kind of divided up into three groups. There are the good Hellions, who are the ones who are relatively friendly and amicable, who have, you know, respectful rivalries with the New Mutants, or really active friendships. Thunderbird is one of those, obviously, Cat's Eye, maybe Jetstream. I think Jetstream's sort of in the neutral Hellions category. Yeah, these, these, these are the Hellions who aren't, like, actively malicious, so like Jetstream Tarot. And then there are the other Hellions. Those are the jerk Hellions, and those are Empath and Roulette, and they're just total dicks. And so Roulette basically convinces Cypher that she would be very attracted to him if he would go play a high-stakes poker game and win for her, and then get super drunk with her and a bunch of Hellfire ladies, and he proceeds to do exactly that. Which is a much, much bigger deal, I think, to everyone else in the comic than it really seems like to me. But what I'm sort of zooming in on here perpetually is Doug Ramsey's amazing fancy hair, because Doug Ramsey has the fanciest hair, and it's great. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that. A lot of people see Doug Ramsey as a nondescript character, but he could totally be a shampoo No, model. he's just, again, I've, I've mentioned this before, he's got the Alan Davis swoop. Doug Ramsey's fancy hair is definitely the name of my new imaginary band. We exclusively cover songs from the album Cruisin' with Ruben and the Jets. That's a really deep cut there, man. So do you think the New Mutants are Frank Zappa fans? Like, specifically, do you think Warlock would be a Frank Zappa fan? You know, I've actually thought about this because that is the kind of life I lead. And the conclusion that I came to is that Doug is probably a huge Zappa fan and Warlock is like kind of into him out of solidarity, but sort of appreciates the complexity of the music in general and then specifically identifies with and appreciates the sentiments of Colony Vegetable. And the chances are good that the vegetable will respond to you. Right. See, totally Warlock right there. I'll buy that. Listeners, yeah. there is some random Zappa trivia for you, which you've probably never thought about in the context of New Mutants before. You're welcome. That's right. Aren't you glad that we went there in the middle of explaining the New Mutants? I feel like I've learned a lot about myself. I feel like I'm a better person. You and Doug Ramsey's fancy hair, which you can see this Friday, covering all the hits of cruising with Ruben and the Jets down at the local drive-in. I kind of feel like we could end the podcast right there and never have another episode, and we would have summed ourselves up pretty well. But we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to say that eventually the New Mutants do converge on a very drunk and scandalous Doug Ramsey. Who is not covering Zappa songs. He's just sort of lounging around with half-naked Hellfire ladies. Right. And, you know, various tensions that have been brewing and bubbling amid this whole gala are starting to get really ugly. And the two leaders of the teams, Thunderbird and Mirage, are like, all right, we need to do something to defuse this. So here's the deal. This poor eyebrow gentleman got totally duped and screwed over by getting sold a fake statue. Tell you what, we'll find out who did the selling of that fake statue. Whoever does that wins and basically gets all the respect. 
the other team loses and has to sort of take the bad rap for whatever mischief we get into on this caper. Because what could possibly go wrong here? Yeah, I mean, I feel like wacky hijinks are a better idea when you're in, like, a wacky hijinks college movie rather than a comic where people regularly die and have their lives ruined. Yeah, wacky hijinks at the Hellfire Club are not really a thing I think of as ending well. And in fact, there is one member of the New Mutants who is not there for the wacky hijinks. That is Karma, and Karma has a different mission. She is sneaking into the lower levels of the Hellfire Club because, of course, any good self-respecting shadowy organization has to have a bunch of, like, robot rooms down below their fancy building. Well, we already knew that because Wolverine ran through the rooms even below those and killed a bunch of guards. Yes, it's like an underground skyscraper full of dead guards. Or, sorry, mangled guards. That was a retcon. So she finds a woman we've seen before. That's a woman named Tessa. Oh, God. Tessa is seldom seen away from Sebastian Shaw. She's sort of his right-hand woman. She kind of keeps him organized and stuff. And we know her later as an X-Men character named Sage. And right here is where that gets its start. Right. Karma tries to possess her and determines that it's almost impossible. It takes all her effort. Her thoughts, they are as sharply focused and ordered and honed as a computer's. This woman is far, far more than she seems. Oh boy, is she ever. We have covered Sage in a cold open, and man, Sage annoys the hell out of me from a continuity perspective. I really like her in Greg Pak's Extreme X-Men. I think she has a lot of fun in there, and that is the only context in which I do not find her just unbelievably boring. But basically, Karma is trying to use Sage to access the Hellfire Club's computers to find her siblings. She's still super worried about them. And as she's doing this, Sebastian Shaw shows up and begins to beat the hell out of Karma, only to be interrupted by Sage saying... Hey, it's cool. She was doing this for a good reason. And, you know, that's totally an excuse that flies at the Hellfire Club. Well, you know, Tessa is a better person than some. And the rest of the Lord's Cardinal come in as well, including Magneto, who says, basically, Shan, we were already looking for them. As soon as I joined the Hellfire Club, one of the first things I did was to ask Tessa to keep using the computers to look for your siblings. We're doing all we can. Why won't you trust me? And Karma's like, man, sorry. But as all that's going on, the two teams, the Hellions and the New Mutants, are getting ready to go on their, you know, kind of rascally gang war against each other. Well, first they have to deal with some internal tensions, and I want to talk about these because they involve my favorite line of this issue. Oh, I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, so Rain Sinclair, Wolf Spain, she has led a relatively sheltered life in some regards. She is very religious, and she's absolutely scandalized by what Doug has been caught doing, specifically carousing shamefully with Hellfire Tramps, which is now officially on my bucket list, too. All right. Yeah, um, maybe next week we can write our next episode and then go carouse shamefully with Hellfire Tramps. I feel like it might be more complicated than that because, you know, Hellfire Club, we're not exactly like figures of great power. Maybe right? if we dress up in some indeterminate past British era's clothing, we'll be fine. Um, We can make cravats, I guess. Uh, it's a step one. Step one, cravat. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, carouse shamefully with Hellfire Tramps. I'm pretty sure my bangs are long enough to do a Doug Ramsey hair swoop, just for the record. Oh, man. I, I could get a, a Megas beard if I brushed my beard out. Dude, that would be amazing. Like, you could be, oh, God, you could be, like, techno-organic Blackbeard. Like, you could wire things into it, like, little LEDs and stuff. The thing was Blackbeard once. Man, Megas would be such a good cosplay. He really would. Like, with the big, scary beard. Listeners, get on it. Yes. Um, so Listeners, hell, you should do that one. Uh, maybe I will. So, yeah, as this is going on, Doug is, like, still super not feeling good because he drank way too much. And I freaking love this part. Like, Ilyana offers to take him to Limbo to, you know, give him a hangover cure, which presumably will involve demons and or the techno-organic virus. You know, she knows what she's doing. And I love it here because Cannonball, who presumably has seen many of his family members do exactly this. He is the oldest of a great many siblings. 
Appreciate your offer, Ilyana, but on this occasion, I figure the hard way is better. He'll remember the experience a whole lot more strongly, and maybe think twice the next time he's tempted. Did the trick with me when my daddy pulled it. Body's a wondrous machine, Douglas, but you abuse it, and it'll make you pay. And then very casually, while having another conversation, he just sort of one-handedly holds Doug up under a cold shower while Doug whines. So Cannonball gets super worried about leadership stuff, but when he's just doing like straight up being everyone's big brother, he's so casually in his element and it's always really charming. Oh yeah. And speaking of characters who are in their element and really just being themselves, Cannonball says, well, you know, it's not too late to back out. And Magma, no Cannonball, the Hellions have insulted us. Are we to let that pass unanswered? Our pride has been earned, my friends, paid for with sweat and no little blood. It is not a thing magma would lightly cast aside. And then she goes into full, like, fiery magma form, just like in an indoor bedroom, which seems like a really bad idea to me. Amara Aquila taking it to 11 at every opportunity. Right? She's like baby Magneto. Exactly. Magmanito. Magmanito. I feel like they would get along really well. Like, okay, so they go around town, just sort of make a day of it. Like, they go to the movies, something really bad, and they just, like, sit there and riff on it, and then end up, like, blowing the roof off the theater? Yeah, they're watching Grown Ups 2. Why would they watch Grown Ups 2? There's actually a podcast that does that every week. Right, so um, that the rest of us don't have to. You know the story, Those Who Walk Away From Omelas? Oh, geez. It's basically like that. Like, that's why none of the rest of us ever have to watch Grown Ups 2. Did we just mix Ursula K. Le Guin and Adam Sandler? Well, anyway, that movie theater with its roof ripped off and a volcano in the middle of it aside, so they're like, all right, we got this caper to do, let's do it in style, and Ileana brings the graduation costumes we last saw when the New Mutants went to go save the baby X-Men. I'm sorry. I, 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 can't, I, I can't actually, I mean, she just said do it in style and then went and got their graduation costumes. Let me tell you about the New Mutants graduation costumes. They suck. They are the worst. The last time we talked about them, we did a costume redesign challenge, and it occurs to me that we actually still have a handful of those to post that have been coming in since. So we will put them up in conjunction with this episode, you know, this coming week. But the point is, the New Mutants graduation costumes are just really terrible and should not be associated with the word style ever under any circumstances because they're just flat out unacceptable. And obviously, I have very strong feelings about this matter. So let's just go on with the story and take that as read. But seriously, fuck those costumes. Well, okay, so the two teams take off, and it becomes pretty clear to the New Mutants, as they spy on the Hellions using Magic's powers, that A, Viper and Silver Samurai are the villains responsible for all this. Sub A, the last time they tangled with Viper and Silver Samurai, Karma was dead for like a really long time, and so those are some scary dudes. And B, the Hellions don't seem to realize that they are walking into severe, severe danger on what was just supposed to be a silly little mission to establish what team was better. They decide basically, screw the challenge, we're going to figure out where the Hellions are going, we're going to teleport in, we're going to go rescue them. And so they end up on a place called Shooter's Island, which I guess is the base right now of Viper and Silver Samurai. And also presumably of Marvel Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter? Presumably, yes. And other supervillains? Uh, exactly. And so it's patrolled by a bunch of generic-looking guards, and so the New Mutants use their powers, as they often do, to break in, and there's one specific part that I want to talk about. Right, okay, so the guard they see is this woman, and she's got a huge gun, she's smoking a cigarette, she's scowling, she just looks super disaffected, and Mirage, who can invoke people's greatest desires or greatest fears, decides she's going to distract this woman by showing her her heart's desire. Her heart's desire is apparently a giant cartoon Easter bunny with the sound effects hippity hoppity hoop. It looks a little weird in context of the rest of the page. Yeah, this raises some questions. And what I sort of vaguely assume with no actual evidence 
might have happened here is that there was originally something else scripted in that had to be substituted out at the last minute. But this guard is just enraptured. Her cigarette just falls out of her mouth. She's got this huge grin. Obviously, this is the dream she's been waiting for, this weird fucking bright yellow Easter bunny. You know, who are we to judge what people are into? It is an amazing moment. So anyway, the New Mutants, long story short, they do break in, they fight some guards, they capture them and start to get some information when all of a sudden the Hellions show up and basically say, hey, you know what? You got played. We knew that you could spy on us and so we misdirected you so that you would be busy here while we went and captured Viper and Silver Samurai. Boom, done, you lose. And specifically, Thunderbird just sort of leaps into the panel saying, very classy threads you're wearing, mutants. You guys rob a circus or what? You know, in his defense, the New Mutants grad costumes are in fact stupid as fuck, as I have addressed at length. But nonetheless, this line is coming from a man in fuchsia tights. I'm just saying. That is true, because while the New Mutants grad costumes are terrible, the Hellions costumes, I mean, they look like mod circus acrobat costumes, like very specifically. Right. But anyway, the New Mutants do reluctantly acknowledge that they did it through trickery, but yeah, the Hellions definitely won, and they all head back to the Hellfire Club. Now, afterwards, Mirage and Thunderbird talk about how their their teams work well together and come close to consummating their ongoing flirtation, but they don't quite because Tessa well, shows to up. To clarify, consummating means a kiss, not like boning on the hellfire floor. Well, yeah, Comics Code Authority. Well, I was going to say on teenagers, but no, actually teenagers would. Anyway, so Tessa interrupts them, though, with a note from Shan, and Shan is leaving the team. She has decided, I have given this much thought and prayer. I can see no other way. I cannot sit idly by, safe and secure, while others search for those I love. My uncle is a crime lord. If anyone has the means of discovering Leong Naga's fate, it is he. Therefore, I have decided to return to his household and his service. Do not follow or attempt to contact me. I shall return when I am able. Until that day, I wish you well. I love you all. Shan Kui Man. Yeah. And so she is gone from the team. And in fact, she's only going to show up in a couple scattered places, teaming up with Wolverine and Beast for a long time before, you know, that Burning Man thing we mentioned. In the yeah, she's, she's going to be off to guest star in, in Wolverine and Madripoor. And she is actually not the only person leaving the New Mutants at the end of this issue, because this is the last issue that we're going to see from writer Chris Claremont. Right. And this is super weird because we've seen x books start without Chris Claremont. But this is the first time we've seen Chris Claremont work on an X-Book for a very long time and then be replaced by someone else. Well, his younger siblings were kidnapped and he had to go work for his uncle, who was a crime lord, to make sure that they were rescued safely. And there's only so many monthly titles you can juggle while doing that. And the next time we saw Chris Claremont was Burning Man. <laughs> um, no, so that would, How awesome would that be? No, Claremont was actually leaving at this point to focus on the launches of two new X-Books, Excalibur and Wolverine, which he would be writing along with Uncanny X-Men. The original plan was for Louise Simonson to take over for six months while those books launched. Louise Simonson is at this point writing X-Factor, and she was Claremont's long, long time editor on the X-Line. And instead, though, she wrote for those six months and then just stayed on New Mutants. So Louise Simonson is going to be the writer of New Mutants until almost the very, very end. Basically, until Rob Liefeld's influence becomes so great that she leaves the book. So let's talk about Claremont's run, what he's established in these first 54 issues, you know, where that's going to take it and what that's meant for the X-Line. Right. So New Mutants was something very different when it started. Like, we'd seen books about teen heroes before. There was Teen Titans, for instance, over in DC. But I think New Mutants did the weird adventures as a metaphor for adolescence better than pretty much any comic I was ever familiar with. And an expansion of the X-Line into a larger world and really an expansion of the creative scope of what was happening at Marvel Comics. New Mutants, for me 
felt like, especially under Claremont, and I think it became significantly less so after his departure, and especially after the departure of Bill Sienkiewicz somewhat earlier. It was the book that was host to a lot of experiments, not only artistically, but also in structure, in tone, and in the kind of stories that you could really tell in a mainline superhero book. Right. It was also home to the first set of fully newly created X characters. I mean, when Giant Size X-Men number one happened, it was still very much coming from the legacy of the Silver Age, and half the characters were from various other sources, you know, Banshee being from other Silver Age stuff, Sunfire having appeared already, that sort of thing. Yeah, very early on in the podcast, when Claremont first came onto the book, when we first hit the Bronze Age, we talked about his vision for an ongoing X-Line and the idea of it being, you know, a generational book, one that characters could age out of and be replaced by new ones. And New Mutants were, in a lot of ways, his vision for the future of the book and the future of the franchise. Yeah. Now, what Louise Simonson will eventually do with the book, which is to shake up its roster a great deal, I think does really follow in Claremont's vision for the title. The tone becomes very, very different from what Claremont did. I think it's easy to be a fan of early New Mutants, which is to say Claremont's first 54 issues, his only 54 issues, because it matches tonally with X-Men very well. Mm -hmm. It complements it really, really nicely. They very, very much feel like two parts of a larger whole. And that's not really going to be the case anymore once Louise Simonson takes over as the main writer. Once she finds her footing, I think she's very, very good. But at this point, we see a much greater diversity of voices within the X-Line. It's still mostly Simonson and Claremont, but still. It's two strong voices instead of just one with sort of a side voice. Well, and the shifts are really different. So Simonson wasn't the first writer on X Factor, but she was really the first one who came in kind of with a lot of intention. The tone of that book is very much hers, and it's a much, much smoother and much clearer point of entry for me. And I love her on X Factor during this era. And I'm not super fond of her first New Mutant stuff. Like, I feel like it it starts out shaky and it takes a while for her to really get that voice and get those characters. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking for a really solid run, I mean, personally, I think that if Claremont was going to end his run, it should have been after number 52. That would have been a great conclusion. But Claremont's run on New Mutants, which is actually collected in, I think, seven classic New Mutants volumes, is stellar. Read it as a whole work and love the hell out of it. Now, I'm not sure if those are in print, but if not, something people ask us a lot is, you know, where can I find these comics? And we have said and said and will continue to say and say that you should talk to your local public or academic library. Because more and more libraries right now are collecting comics and collecting graphic novels and collections. And even if they don't have them, they can often get them for you on interlibrary loan. They have access to a huge, huge network. And if budgeting for comics is an issue, if if trying to track this stuff down is an issue, there are people whose jobs are to help you track down difficult to find reading material. They are experts in it. They go to school for it. So take advantage of those systems and those networks. Public libraries are amazing and they are really, really, really amazing if you're a comics reader. Because that can be a very expensive and very difficult to access hobby. And being able to go in and and find that stuff, even if it takes some time or you have to request it, is, I think, hugely important. So speaking of asking questions of experts, you guys have asked some questions of the experts. So Anonymous asks on Tumblr, in the first or maybe second issue of Grant Morrison's new X-Men run, Emma Frost gets into a taxi and the taxi driver asks if, quote, that's an English accent I hear. She replies in the affirmative. Why the hell would Emma Frost have an English accent? Excellent question. So Emma Frost is in fact not British. Her family is from Boston. They have been in America since the 1600s. However, a lot of Emma's arc, especially if you read the old Emma Frost miniseries or know much about her background, is about basically cutting ties with her family on as many fronts as possible, and in a lot of ways controlling her presentation, how people see her, how she comes across. And some of that is about, you know, her appearance, and some of that is about, you know, pretense of class, pretense of being something exotic and foreign, and something seen as more sophisticated. And so, you know, adopting a British accent or at least making other people think she has one kind of fits in with the attempt to develop that particular image. That's a very, very kind of New England aristocracy thing. 
that kind of makes sense both coming out of that and as a rebellion against it. So no, she is not British. Her accent is entirely affected. And speaking of at least sounds, Mac emailed us to ask, is Blaston noisy? I know that Sam Guthrie is nigh invulnerable when he's Blaston and assumed he was pretty loud, too. The attached panel seems to indicate that Blaston is counterintuitively pretty quiet. What say ye? And the, the attached panel is of Cyclops saying that Archangel and Cannonball should fly reconnaissance, but Banshee should skip because he's too noisy. Okay, so... I actually had a really hard time finding concrete evidence either way for this, because when you see Cannonball flying around, like, you see sound effects in comics all the time, but you don't really see sound effects when Cannonball's flying. There's just sort of the big explodey effects coming out of his legs. And I mean, there's also the fact that he can talk to people that he's carrying without seeming to have to yell, so that would imply to me that it's, if not silent, at least very quiet. But then I went back to the New Mutants graphic novel, like the first appearance of the characters, and the first time you see Sam Guthrie use his powers, which is to blast a co-worker of his out of a collapsing mine, there's like a kawoom sound effect. So here is my headcanon ball. See what I did there? Oh, you, God, Miles. Yes. Miles. Miles. And that is that- I hope you're happy in the life you've chosen for yourself. I am. That is that when Cannonball starts blasting, there's sort of like a big explodey thing as the kinetic field that he controls bursts out of him. And of course, there are sound effects when he crashes into things, which happens like all the damn time. But that when he is flying, there's just sort of a dull, quiet roar. Now, I suspect as Cannonball has gained more and more control over his powers to the point where he can even project that blast field like in a punch or something, probably he's able to quiet it way down from there. It's also worth noting that Cyclops is comparing him to Banshee, who literally flies by screaming at the top of his lungs. So there's a fair amount of room for quieter than Banshee, like between quieter than Banshee and silent. That's very true. That's a very good point. All right. So that I think wraps things up. Now, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is an entirely listener-supported podcast. We come to you courtesy of the very rad folks who support us on Patreon and some of those patronage tiers come with thanks on air from a variety of fictional characters, silly voices, and pretentious nonsense. So I will turn it over to Corsair, specifically sexy Corsair, I believe, in this context. Hey, every Corsair is sexy Corsair. Been a long time since I've seen the likes of you out in Shi'ar space. What was it? Will Sanders? Nihar Bot? Must be rough out here all on your own. Tell you what. My ship, the Starjammer, is just out back. Why don't we finish up this round, and then you can head on up and meet the crew. They're a friendly bunch. I think you'll get along. Wow. So, uh, key party in space, then. Of course. All right, on that note, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. It's produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and it's made possible by its generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. And on a side note, if you happen to be at PAX Prime this year, I'm going to be working the Dark Horse booth. Come say hi. I'll be somewhat distracted, but I can at least wave at you and smile. He is the friendly half of the podcast, so you, you get the good side there. Meanwhile, next week, since we record a week out so we can do that, we will be checking back in with the Uncanny X-Men. As they prepare to implement Plan Omega. But not that one. <laughs>